Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk about Mexico with my friend Andres Rosenthal. A career foreign service officer, Andres served as Mexico's ambassador to Sweden and the United Kingdom and as deputy foreign minister. He is the founding president of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations. He holds the lifetime rank of eminent ambassador of Mexico. His work on behalf of improving the Canada-US relation, sorry, the Canada-Mexico relationship was honored by our embassy in Mexico City. For listeners, we approach the fifth year of President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's six-year administration. Elections in 2018 gave the AMLO movement not just the presidency, but both houses of the Mexican legislature, as well as power in a host of states, governorships and legislatures. The midterm elections in June 2021 narrowed the leftist coalition's majority in Congress, but it continues to be the dominant force in the 500 seat legislature. An AMLO generated recall referendum this past April on AMLO's continuing leadership gained him the support of 90% of those who voted although the turnout was only 18%, with opposition parties boycotting the referendum. Nevertheless, recent surveys put AMLO's personal popularity at over 50%. AMLO, the former mayor of Mexico who had run twice before for the presidency, campaigned as a populist. Leading the Morena, a movement unbeholden to the traditional political parties, AMLO promised a, quote, fourth transformation, unquote, that would return power and prosperity to the Mexican people. But during the past four years, his administration has faced a bumpy road with the pandemic, a slowing economy, rising levels of violence in the country and continuing challenges posed by migration. There is also a question about his commitment to Mexico's democracy. In a recent piece entitled Mexico's Dying Democracy and Foreign Affairs that we will link to, Professor Denise Dresser concluded, quote, Lopez Obrador is taking the country down a familiar path, not to a strong, healthy democracy, but to a lawless, corrupt kleptocracy, supported by people who should know better, unquote. Strong words. So let's get started. Andres, I thought we would drill down into the kind of policy sectors that AMLO promised to take action on. And I'll start with the economy. AMLO campaigned promising 4% growth annually, but it's nowhere near that level, notwithstanding the pandemic. Between 2019 and 2021, when bad economic conditions worsened with COVID-19, Mexico's GDP shrank more than any of the other Latin American countries. Why? What made Mexico special? Thanks, uh, Colin, and it's a pleasure, as always, to, to be on a podcast with you. I think the reason, the primary reason uh, for the poor economic performance of, uh, of Mexico during the four years that Lopez Obrador has been president um, really boils down to a combination of the pandemic and the slowdown in economic activity that took place globally, not just in Mexico, but uh, also because of domestic economic strategies that Lopez Obrador has followed, which unfortunately have not uh, produced either the growth or the uh, type of 
economic performance that uh, he promised during his campaign and that many of us would have liked to see. Uh, the fact is that he is uh, relatively anti-private sector. So he has made sure to scare off a lot of the foreign investment that Mexico would need in order to grow. And there's been very little, if any, uh, public uh, investment in Mexico by the public sector, uh, except for some of his pet projects, like a new airport and a train uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula, none of which are really productive in terms of giving the economy a boost. Now, the, the, the people in the civil service that he brought in, in my experience, seemed like the professional technocrats that have served previous administrations of different parties. So what you're saying is it really is the political direction from AMLO himself that has uh, complicated Mexico's economic performance. That's correct, but I, I would argue that uh, there was not much of a, uh, shall we say, civil service continuity uh, when AMLO took over. Uh, he basically put in his cabinet mainly uh, very, uh, I'd say, uh, unprepared loyalists rather than technocrats. And as a result, uh, both in the energy sector as well as in the Ministry of the Economy, uh, the results have been have been very far from uh, what would have been uh, his expectations. Nonetheless, he has uh, really not changed much. His Minister of Economy resigned on her own uh, a month or so ago and was replaced by the head of the uh, of the internal revenue in Mexico, the tax collecting authority that really has no knowledge whatsoever and is not familiar with uh, how the Ministry of Economy works and how an economy as a whole works. And this is probably uh, replicated in many of the other areas of the government. Uh, perhaps the only one cabinet appointment that one could consider to be uh, more of a technocratic uh, nature was the foreign minister, uh, Marcelo Ebrard, but he has been tasked with so many other uh, jobs of getting vaccines and, uh, and doing other things that have nothing to do with foreign policy that even in that area, uh, the, 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 the government and the country have fallen uh, enormously from the position that we used to have on the global stage to where we are today. So what you're saying, Andres, because certainly my observation looking at the trade ministry and the foreign ministry was that, yes, the, the players at the top, which, which you've spoken to, were loyalists and sort of friends. What, what's always impressed me about the Mexican senior civil service is that they are, uh, they are technocrats in the best sense. Uh, and basically there to advance uh, the interests of Mexico and do so in my certainly experience with, uh, uh, with, a, with, with a great deal of success because they're both knowledgeable and hardworking. Well, I can, I can give you an example, Colin, of, of what you're talking about, but uh, at the same time, 
how uh, things have changed uh, in, in, in Mexico in this government. Um, in the Ministry of Economy, the uh, Deputy Minister for International Trade Negotiations is, uh, was uh, a perfect example of the technocratic knowledge and experience that you mentioned, Luz Maria de la Mora. And she was in charge of negotiating uh, for the four years so far of, of Lopez Obrador's administration, various uh, free trade agreements and economic associations with the EU and was in charge uh, most recently of the consultations that the US and Canada have asked for under the USMCA uh, or CUMEX as you call it um, in, in, the, in the energy sector. But she uh, was sacked uh, by uh, the replacement minister uh, because the replacement minister that took office a month ago uh, said that the, the whole negotiating team, uh, which was indeed uh, con continuity and technocratic excellence, I'd say, uh, uh, represented in that, in that particular part of the government, uh, had not given good results, and so she fired them all. And now the uh, negotiating uh, job is in the hands of a political appointment who is the son of another deputy minister in the Ministry of Interior, and who has absolutely no experience whatsoever in international trade negotiations. Uh, so, you know, uh, yes, in theory, we do have, I think we've always had, a very good group of highly qualified and experienced uh, civil servants in various parts of government. But Lopez Obrador, AMLO, has seen fit to uh, get rid of that and to replace it with people who he whom he trusts and who uh, unfortunately are not that knowledgeable. Uh, he, uh, he is on record as saying that for his government appointments, 90% counts uh, for loyalty and only 10% for experience and, and uh, knowledge. Well, certainly in the case of Luz Maria de la Mora, we're both graduates from the same graduate school. And uh, she and I worked together uh, in the late 90s on the NAFTA and, and then more recently when she took her new position. And she, as you, uh, you, as you observed, was a true professional and always struck me as, again, the example of that best kind of technocrat uh, that Mexico uh, civil servants have, in my experience, usually uh, demonstrated, yourself included, my friend. So I'm sorry to hear thank, that. That thanks, explains thank part you. of the problems. Well, I'll, I'll move on to the sort of social welfare state where AMLO promised infrastructure, jobs for youth, relief for the elderly. Um, is he making progress? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, on relief for the elderly and job creation for young uh, youngsters, young people who are not uh, either employed or being uh, or in education, uh, what he has done basically is uh, increased massively the amount and value of handouts that the government is giving those uh, sectors. So for example, in the case of the elderly, 
in a non-means-tested way. Every single uh, Mexican adult over the age of 65 gets a monthly stipend, irrespective of whether they need it or not. Um, and that has increased considerably. And in the case of the youngsters, they've created some programs for uh, employment, temporary employment mostly, with um, uh, scholarships and uh, additional resources which come straight from the treasury into the hands of these, of these people. So um, yes, maybe there's been some uh, advance on the way in which they have uh, tried to relieve things, but on the other hand, the clear uh, situation in terms of the Gini coefficient and the amount of uh, uh, poverty in Mexico hasn't changed one bit. That's, that As a matter of fact, they promised to do because the the educate the reforms made in previous governments, or at least efforts at reform, particularly for education and primary and secondary, um, which struck me as moving in the right direction, as you talked about the Gini yeah. coefficient, but it needed more effort. So you're saying that that really hasn't proceeded? No, it's cost a lot of money for the, from the taxpayers, from myself and other taxpayers, but it has not led to any major change. Uh, on the contrary, I think most of the analysis that's been made uh, on uh, the question of reduction of poverty uh, and other uh, socioeconomic uh, criteria show that uh, it's been uh, four years of a slight regression, uh, not four years of any progress. So uh, unfortunately, this is another one of AMLO's campaign promises that has not been fulfilled together with that of uh, high economic growth and job creation. I think that you know none of these promises that AMLO made in his campaign, and one should always take campaign promises with a grain of salt, uh, none of them have materialized. I mean, the economy, this is going to be the first six-year period um, of a presidency in Mexico where there will have been zero growth, zero economic growth. Uh, and and that is, you know, even 2008 uh, with uh, Lehman Brothers and all of the collapse uh, that there, that took place then, uh, we never got to a, a zero growth for a whole six year period. So that's that's one part. The the employment, poverty reduction, education. Uh, AMLO has fallen short, uh, and in reality uh, has withdrawn budgetary resources for science tech, for all the STEM education, uh, even for primary and secondary schools, all because the government does not have enough money to pay for these huge, I would call white elephant projects like the refinery in Tabasco, uh, the uh, Tren Maya in, uh, in the Yucatan, uh, the new airport, which even today, six months after being inaugurated, uh, has, I think, uh, five or six flights a day uh, coming in or out of it. Uh, all of these have demanded enormous budgetary resources, which he has had to take away from 
education, from culture, uh, from uh, all sorts of parts of the economy uh, that uh, are those that would generally be more productive. Uh, and that's where, unfortunately, uh, we stand today. And this will probably continue for the next two months, uh, two years, I'm sorry, uh, until the end of his six year period. Not encouraging. Well, let's move to one which I know is always a, a challenge, and that's crime and corruption, where he promised that he would he would deal with it. And when I, I think he has nationalized the police force, but still crime rises. And uh, in her piece, Denise Dresser says an average of 11 women are killed every day. So I guess I'd ask you, how do you assess his fight against crime and corruption? Well, that's unfortunately another tragedy because um, you know, he started out his administration with this famous, now famous uh, saying, uh, uh, no bullets, hugs instead of bullets. Uh, and uh, he has, in effect, uh, created a narco state in some parts of the, of the country, or if he hasn't created them directly, he has allowed it to happen, uh, where uh, state governors and local municipalities are entirely in the hands of the criminal element elements that are devoted to not only drug trafficking, but all sorts of illicit activities. Uh, and as far as corruption is concerned, Colin, unfortunately, uh, this is a longstanding issue in Mexico. Uh, it has not gotten better. I would probably say that uh, even though Lopez Obrador himself may not be uh, suspect uh, in any corruption, uh, not only now, but on the length of his political career. Uh, a lot of the people around him, including a brother uh, and one of his sons, uh, have been uh, clearly implicated uh, in potential corruption inquiries. So uh, no, no progress there either. Uh, unfortunately. So, you know, if you look on balance at where this uh, country has gone in the last four years, uh, none of the things that uh, were in his initial uh, promises uh, are, are, are close to being fulfilled. His newest uh, uh, attempt to create a National Guard uh, and keep it in power as a police force until 2028 uh, has basically led to the state and local police, civilian police, uh, being either disbanded or neglected uh, but in a budgetary way. And so instead of strengthening Mexico's civilian police force, he has handed over to the military a job which doesn't belong to the military and never should belong to a military anywhere in the world, uh, which is civilian law enforcement. And, um, you know, the military are not any much better than uh, others that were previously involved in policing. Uh, there are numerous cases of uh, alleged abuses of human rights. The uh, feminicide issue, which Denise talks about in her article in Foreign Affairs, is very much a concern. Uh, women activists uh, who cover issues such as uh, abortion or, or women's rights have been uh, gunned down. Uh, nobody knows really by whom uh, or why. 
but they have been. And the same is true with other activists in the human rights field, which has led to the big human rights organizations, uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and others, together with the Mexican human rights organizations, non-governmental, uh, to uh, give Mexico a totally failing grade in terms of fighting uh, abuses of human rights or fighting corruption. We'll come back to some of that, but I want to move to foreign policy, which is certainly your area of expertise, but I don't think it's been AMLO's priority, and notwithstanding COVID, he's not what you would call a frequent flyer or active participant on the international circuit. Uh, in the first years, of course, he had to endure Donald Trump and his wall, and the migrant crisis continues in the neighborhood, especially Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, remains chaotic. Um, but how would you assess and define his foreign policy? I would, you know, again, I would, I would be on the, on the side of those many analysts, uh, both domestically and internationally, who have uh, said, you know, where is Mexico's foreign policy these days? Uh, what is its foreign policy? Uh, we obviously know that we need to be uh, close to and, and engaged with our uh, USMCA partners, Canada and Mexico, and the US, sorry, uh, and that there should be engagement also with Europe and with Latin America and Asia, Africa. None of that really is, is there. Um, he has had, like you mentioned, uh, to endure Trump. He now has had to endure Biden because at the end of the day, uh, the relationship with the United States it, at this particular juncture is probably at uh, a nadir of, of, the, of the way in which uh, it has taken uh, front, uh, front page uh, for Mexico's foreign policy for a long time. Uh, AMLO doesn't waste any opportunities for, uh, you know, saying how how well he gets along with Biden and how, how respectful Biden is of Mexico's sovereignty. But at the same time, he attacks the US, he attacks individual senators and congressmen, governors, uh, voters in general, uh, and, and is generally anti-American in that, in that sense. With Canada, unfortunately, I, I have to recognize that after many years, of having a dynamic and increasingly uh, important relationship with Canada, uh, Mexico has sort of disappeared from the Canadian map. Uh, one supposes that now uh, in December, there will be a summit uh, of the three amigos, as you call them often in Canada, uh, that Mr. Trudeau, uh, Mr. Biden and Mr. Lopez Obrador will get together somewhere in Mexico um, but uh, that is a, a photo op uh, more than anything else. And unfortunately, I don't think that Canada is much of a priority uh, in, in the foreign policy agenda such as it is. So aside from the US and some sort of trying to be friendly with the uh, autocratic uh, leaders in Latin America, uh, Ortega in Nicaragua, Cuba, Maduro in Venezuela, 
uh, and some of the others, the recently minted ones in Chile, Peru, uh, etc. Uh, the fact is that there is very little to show for a foreign policy agenda, unfortunately. Um, he is not interested much in the abroad, whether the near abroad or the far abroad. Uh, he doesn't travel. He hasn't attended any of the summits of the G20 or uh, of uh, COP uh, now in, in Egypt. He generally sends his foreign minister or even less than his foreign minister to these things. And, uh, and it's clear that when he has appeared virtually in some of these meetings, he uses that appearance to talk to a domestic audience rather than to an international audience. So for those of us like myself and you, Colin, who are used to um, a Mexican foreign policy that is active, proactive, and uh, fights for defending uh, the country's interests abroad, this has not been a good period. No, because, you know, when I think back and the people, I think Rosarina, others, you, you took a leading role in early on in climate, in human rights. Uh, you know, Mexican diplomats also seem to be able to uh, be the bridge with the rest of the Americas. But uh, as you point out, that hey, that hasn't happened. And no. uh, you know, when I look at South America in, in recent years, we seem to be turning to a sort of uh, having tried the sort of the, the, the Washington consensus stuff. It seems moving back to the left. You look at the elections recently in Brazil, see what's happened in Argentina, even our Pacific Alliance partners, Peru, Colombia, Chile. Um, what's this, this? This is a phenomenon. Is it something that again, our listeners be interested in, I'd be interested in your perspective on this, because it, it, it is certainly a departure from what we, what we thought was happening in uh, the Latin America. Indeed, indeed, uh, Colin, and, uh, uh, you know, obviously, these things, to some extent, are cyclical uh, in political change uh, in various parts of the world, uh, and in Latin, Latin America has not been an exception. We went from a period of um, a lot of military dictatorships in, in the region to a period of democracy and openness and economic uh, growth. And, um, and now uh, the, the pendulum has swung back to a pretty much left of center series of autocratic dictators or uh, dem democratically elected autocrats who uh, fundamentally are populists, either on the right or on the left, uh, but that uh, generally have much more of an inward vision in terms of how they see themselves in the world, like Lopez Obrador, and also who uh, feel that globalization, the Washington consensus, and all of these other things that brought a fair degree of prosperity to most of the Latin American countries. I mean, certainly Peru and Colombia, uh, Mexico to some extent, the Brazil. Uh, now, uh, the fact is that almost all of them are in the doldrums and doing poorly. So I don't know how long this is gonna last. I think the latest elections that took place both in Brazil and in Chile and other countries in the region 
including the US, by the way, show uh, a desire for change more than um, ideological preference for right or left, uh, a, a desire to kick out the ones who are in power and replace them with somebody else. And, um, and that's what's happened uh, in Chile. It's what's happened in Peru, in uh, Argentina, not so much because the Peronists stay in power as they have for quite some time now. But it is the case uh, in Brazil with Lula's return. And uh, we'll just have to see how all that plays uh, in the uh, socioeconomic sector. Uh, there are areas, for example, we hear from Lula a big commitment to uh, climate change and the environment and taking care of the Amazon and so on. We'll have to see how that pans out uh, in reality. But by and large, uh, this uh, what they call the pink wave in Latin America, which is not really a, a homogeneous wave because there are uh, leaders in different looking uh, coming from different aspects of how they got into power and what they're doing when they're there. But the fact is that, yes, the region has turned somewhat uh, to a more populist, socially mandated agenda, at least in the rhetoric. Uh, it's too soon to tell what the uh, effects of that is going to be, are going to be in, in the case of the newly elected leaderships in Latin America. But if you take Mexico with a four-year track record in this government as a benchmark, it is clear that uh, hasn't 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 worked. No, and one thing as you as you pointed out earlier, foreign investment is now wary, and then that's going to have an effect, obviously, on the economic. So that you know, China, you know, I, I see presence of China. I was in Peru in May, certainly present there, and you read about what they're doing in the rest of Latin America. What about China in Mexico? China in Mexico is less uh, evident than in some of the countries in South America and Central America. Um, there are lots of reasons for this, uh, partly historical, uh, partly our relationship with the US, with Washington. Uh, remember that in the new uh, NAFTA and the USMCA, uh, the fact is that there is an anti-China bias uh, in, built into the text of that agreement. Yes. Uh, and I think that basically the Chinese uh, have been looking more towards the southern part of the region than towards Mexico. But that, I think, now is beginning to change. Um, one uh, hears of and sees uh, Chinese... Uh, entrepreneurs uh, coming to Mexico, looking at opportunities here, especially as a platform to enter the U.S., given the sanctions and given the poor uh, bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China. Uh, so in many ways, the Chinese have looked at Mexico as a nearshoring experience for them to get into the U.S. market, in addition to the US, uh, Mexico's own uh, market going forward. But it's nowhere near the uh, volume or the importance of the Chinese presence in countries in South America, uh, and probably won't, won't be as important as some people would like it to be. 
I think that, uh, you know, like Canada, Colin, we are neighbors to the largest and most powerful economy in the world, at least until now. And that uh, consumes most of the potential that there is for uh, economic exchanges and other things, investment and so on, that would uh, uh, perhaps in a different situation if a country like Brazil, which is a bit far removed from North America, uh, is able to sort of spread its interests uh, between Asia, Europe, and the Americas. Uh, for Mexico, our primary interest is always and always has been the US, uh, and now obviously Canada as well. I, I always like to point out to my students and to uh, my clients in my consultancy that uh, in 1920, uh, 100 years ago, the percentage of the influence of the United States in the Mexican economy, both in terms of trade and investment, was about the same as it is today. What's changed, of course, is that the pie is a lot bigger. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about many more billions of dollars. But the fact is that the 80 to 90% reliance that Mexico has on the US for trade and for investment uh, hasn't changed in a, in a century and will be unlikely to change because as in all of the discussions that I hear and partake of these days where you talk about uh, uh, supply chains, nearshoring, ally shoring, friend shoring, whatever you want to call it, uh, the fact that you Canadians and we Mexicans are neighbors of the United States geographically is a huge advantage and one which is very difficult to compete against if you're looking uh, from China or from other parts of the world. So uh, I think we will probably continue to have that same dependence on the US. Uh, and that, uh, you know, in some times and some cases, it's been very positive and others negative. When the US goes into a recession, which it is probably likely to do soon, if not already in it, uh, that affects us immediately. Uh, and when the US gets out of a recession and goes into a boom period of growth, as it did in 2008, uh, after the, the crisis, uh, the first countries to benefit are Canada and Mexico. So uh, we're already seeing a little bit of an uptick in exports to the US. As a matter of fact, in the last quarter, uh, their record was broken in terms of the value of our exports into the United States um, historically. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the reality. One thing are the speeches and how nice it is to talk about diversification and, and not having all your eggs in one basket. But the fact is that reality has always been and will continue to be, I think, for some time to come, the U.S. as far as Mexico is concerned. Oh, very much so. And look, I, I, I pointed out earlier that you had recently, well, not probably I guess a year and a half ago, honored by our embassy and our ambassador for uh, your ongoing uh, uh, advice to Canadian leadership on Mexico. What would be your assessment today in, in terms of advice? As you point out, we've got the uh, a Three Amigos Summit coming up. And you know, to me, as you say, this is probably just going to be mostly photo op. 
but certainly my observation, and I think you made the same point, is that we're we're in a kind of slumber period in terms of the relationship. We're about to have a new uh, Mexican ambassador to Canada, uh, one of your former governors coming up. Um, and I think his remit is to, as I read it, to promote tourism. Well, Canadians will come back to Mexico, I'm sure of that, once uh, once they feel more comfortable traveling in air again, because Mexico is always an attractive place for Canadians to go. But the relationship, as we both know, could be much more than that. Uh, you know, we've got some problems right now around what we see as confiscatory policies in energy. But uh, what, what, what advice would you give to Canadian leaders when we look at Mexico? Well, I think probably the one single area that uh, I am most concerned about in the trilateral relationship, and that includes obviously our bilateral relationship with Canada, is what's the future of our USMCA or Kuzma uh, treaty. Uh, as you know, it has a sunset clause. It has to be reviewed in the year 2026. Um, it requires a positive uh, decision by all three governments to continue. Um, and uh, obviously, as we look at the various um, disputes uh, that are uh, underway and being, uh, being dealt with under the treaties settlement of dispute the provisions, uh, how that turns out is going to be, I think, instrumental uh, in the future of, of the trilateral arrangement. Um, there is, you know, in the elections that just took place uh, the day before yesterday in, in the States, there is a clear uh, advantage to uh, legislators and governors uh, who have been either reelected or elected uh, to look at Mexico, at the relationship with Mexico in pretty much unfavorable, in an unfavorable light, uh, mainly because of migration and because of crime and because of security issues. But uh, that doesn't change the fact that you have some rather violent uh, speeches about Mexico in the US Congress and among individual governors, uh, such as Mr. DeSantis in Florida and Mr. Abbott in Texas. And, uh, you know, these are the people who are going to be running the US uh, when the review process takes place. So one has to be very, very careful if one wants to nurture the continuity of the Kusma, and if we want to make sure that our trilateral economic relationship continues to foster uh, growth in our exports, imports, our investment, mutual investments, uh, that we need to take care of that. And uh, we need to take care of it in the immediate future. So my advice at such would be really to work with Mexico, uh, Canada, and the Canadian government and the Mexican government to try to make sure that we keep the trilateral arrangement. And we only have uh, three years to do it. And I think that's gonna be the number one, the number one priority 
We'll have a new government in Mexico when that comes to take place. There will probably be a new government in Canada, and there will certainly be a different government in the US. So I think that's the challenge. As far as uh, tourism and investment and so on go, uh, you know, I think, as you say yourself, um, after the pandemic, which affected uh, flights and, and, and uh, connections between Canada and Mexico, uh, that seems now to be more on a normal, on a path towards normality. Uh, I read recently that uh, there are many, many um, Mexicans who are taking flights to Montreal and then claiming asylum, which is not a good thing. We had a period of that before, and that led to the imposition of visas and restrictions on Mexicans traveling to Canada. Uh, we've never had restrictions on Canadians traveling to Mexico, but I think it's important that we nurture the tourism angle. And I suspect that's why uh, the governor uh, of Quintana Roo has been appointed ambassador to Canada because that's one of the areas where Mexico's tourism is most dynamic. Well, good advice and also good advice for the incoming uh, Mexican ambassador who uh, we wish well. And I think that you've, uh, I agree with you entirely that the, the top of that agenda should be the continuing of the continental partnership, uh, economic and, you know, in, in the long term, it should include things like climate and at some point security. And I thought we were moving in that direction, but it seems to have come to a halt for now. And also... So Another area where Canadian interests in Mexico are, are extremely important, of course, is the mining sector. Yes. And that is a sector in which uh, the current government has decided to create a, a moratorium in terms of new mining concessions in Mexico uh, and a review of existing mining concessions and how they operate and how they were obtained and so on. So that is another area which I think uh, for the Canadian side uh, is important to keep an eye on. Uh, Canadian mining interests in Mexico uh, have been extremely productive in terms of mining of precious metals and other things. So I think that's also an area. And the automotive sector. In the automotive sector, where Canada is an extremely important presence in the auto parts uh, industry, um, we are now faced with this question of interpreting the KUSMA uh, on the regional content in the automotive sector. Uh, there, Canada and Mexico jointly have uh, uh, started a consultation process with the United States. We, neither of us, Canada or Mexico, agree with the interpretation that the U.S. Uh, TR has given to uh, regional content. Uh, we expect a decision uh, from the panel that was um, uh, set up for this uh, arbitration to come uh, within weeks. And uh, from what I hear on, on the Mexican side, uh, our industry is quite uh, uh, positive and quite certain that the arbitration will go our way, that is Canada and Mexico's way. So... Um, you know, how that affects the U.S. is always an open question. The Americans have a history of uh, ignoring or, or simply uh, denying uh, adverse uh, decisions by international tribunals. 
such as the ones that work under under the trilateral arrangement. So we'll have to see how that reflects when the time comes politically for the uh, unions in the US and the automotive sector in the US to react. But uh, at the same time, we have the other dispute in the energy sector, which US and Canada have jointly um, accused Mexico of violating the terms of the trilateral treaty. Uh, that is still under a consultation process, but is likely at the end of the day to go also to arbitration. And uh, on that one, I'm quite certain that Mexico will lose because our laws are in, in, in contradiction to the commitments that we undertook under the uh, Kusma. So there we are. Uh, it's a complicated relationship, as always, Colin, uh, bilaterally and trilaterally. Uh, the Americans are not particularly keen, uh, never have been really, on uh, trilateralizing or even multilateralizing some of their relationships. They prefer bilateral, bilateral uh, ties, uh, which they consider give them more leverage. Uh, it's certainly the case, I think, with Canada and with Mexico. So we'll have to see how all of this uh, turns out. But as I said, I think our number one priority right now is to protect our uh, trilateral arrangement uh, and give it the possibility of once again um, proving that together, the three of us are better than each of us individually. Yes, and certainly the the economic record and the historical record would uh, both uh, underline and prove that. So indeed. My final question to you, Andres, what are you reading or streaming these days? <laughs> well, streaming series, a lot of TV series, which yes. I enjoy. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we were stuck uh, uh, in a sort of a lockdown for quite some time. And uh, one ended one ended up uh, doing much more television watching than we <laughs> normally have done. I love the political th thrillers. I love some of the uh, ones on on espionage and and historical ones on on the world wars and others. Uh, reading, I, I'm I'm reading a couple of, of I, I I read two or three books at a time. I'm reading one uh, which is called the the Solitude of Latin America which was just published uh, in Spanish uh, here in Mexico. It is a dialogue or a trialogue actually between two Mexican uh, analysts uh, and uh, academics and uh, Ricardo Lagos, the ex-president uh, of Chile, <clears throat> who uh, basically discuss what we mentioned a little earlier, and that is that Latin America has sort of dropped out of the global scenario um, with uh, each country sort of being much more individually and uh, domestically oriented than internationally oriented. And uh, the, the, other, the other two books that I'm reading, <clears throat> I don't read novels anymore, Colin. I've decided that novels are, are something that one reads when one is younger, but I, I <laughs> enjoy rereading re rereading things that I, I read years ago as, as a young person 
uh, or even already when I was when I was working. So I'm reading uh, the Tocqueville's Democracy in America because I, I think that probably that was one of the most um, momentous moments in which a foreign observer looked at the US, even though it was a very different US than what we have today, uh, and, and came up with this uh, diagnosis. And at the same time, my brother, uh, Jorge Castaneda, has published a book uh, by the Oxford University Press uh, in English called um, uh, America Through Foreign Eyes, which is a contemporary version of um, democracy in America. And I think it's an, a, a very interesting to compare these two, these two um, visions, uh, the, the historical one and the contemporary one. So that's where, that's where I am these days. Excellent. But I also have to read, I also have to read newspapers, magazines. I read The Economist cover to cover every week. I read the Financial Times every day. I read very little Mexican Mexican media because um, I I'm, I find that they are really uh, too engaged in being apologists or critics of the government. And I I believe that one should try to make up one's own mind about these things. Yes, I think that's good advice for healthy democracy. Um, well. Andres, thank you so much, and thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Andres Rosenthal, and we will make reference to the, the books that he talked about. Remember, you can find the CJA Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnain and to Drew Phillips for composing our theme music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.